You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The old hero, old hickory. He was the type of man, a complex individual to say the least, as all great individuals are. He detested distinction of privilege. He really felt that he was a voice of the common man. But we mustn't misconstrue this. I'm wearing some tight, tight jeans, and tonight we're delving into some serious, serious crap. When the name Andrew Jackson comes into conversation, various concepts and ideas arise. Whether it be his place in the $20 bill, the trail of tears, the creation of the Democratic Party, or the discussion of whether he was the greatest president or the worst in American history. However, the one aspect of his life that people typically overlook is that Andrew Jackson was the first emo president. Thankfully, for those who wanted to learn more about that, and even those who didn't, the musical Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson was created in which the seventh president's emo tendencies were dialed up to 11. Gone was the idea of the old white guy who wore suits with popped up collars, and in his place was a virgin who instead loved wearing dark eyeliner and extremely tight pants. At first glance, it seemed like the concept was a stupid one, to say the least, and would be critically panned and closed almost instantly. However, while Bloody Bloody did flop commercially, it was met with some of the best reviews of the 2010-2011 Broadway season. And thus, the reason for why it flopped isn't as simple of an answer as it might seem. How did a show that received such rave reviews in the New York Times the Washington Post, and The Rolling Stone not transcend to the height of such shows like American Idiot, Spring Awakening, and even the future Hamilton, especially when factoring in that it had all the ingredients to make it a hit. Catchy songs, a strong book, a great creative team, and a charismatic lead in Ben Walker. Diving into the research, I realized that this is more than just the story of a Broadway play family, and instead serves as a commentary on the current state of Broadway as a whole. This is the investigation of just what went wrong with Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. The journey of bringing Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson to the stage started in 2003 when Alex Timbers, 
a writer and director, developed a company that wanted to focus on creating aggressively visceral, comically avant-garde theater with a specific focus on historical revisionism. From this pursuit, the company Le Frère Corbusier was born, named after the Swiss-French designer and painter who became known as one of the pioneers of modern-day architecture. From its earliest work, you can tell that Timber's sense of humor and interests are unique ones, specifically with the company's first few plays, including a very merry unauthorized children's Scientology pageant and a deconstruction of one of New York City's most controversial urban planners, Robert Moses, in the show Boozy. In 2005, however, Timbers would meet a man who would go on to become one of his greatest collaborators and one of his best friends. Basically, I like to think of it as kind of um, punk boys in their 20s um, whining about girls who you know, wouldn't date them in high school and, you know, feeling very, very, very sorry for themselves. If you're familiar with the shows Mr. Burns, The Fortress of Solitude, or The Great Immensity, then chances are high that you know the name Michael Friedman. For Friedman, music had always been a crucial element in his life. As a child, it was the only thing that would stop him from crying, and he started playing the piano at the age of five. As he grew, his passion for music grew with him, and that passion eventually led him to Harvard. It was here that he realized that he wanted to pursue music as a career after taking a music composition class instructed by the composer Elizabeth Swados. Swados and Friedman became instant adversaries, and she served as a mentor to him, eventually bringing him on as the music director for a production of Cymbaline at Shakespeare in the Park, which was hosted by the Public Theater. This would go on to kick off a long working relationship between Friedman and the public, in which he would go on to be a frequent artist in residence and the director of the public forum, which was a series of talkbacks between creators and the audience. Through a series of events, Timbers and Friedman were brought together by an artistic blind date, in which the two initially sat down and cut straight to the chase, asking each other, hey, what do you want to do? Over the hour-long talk, they soon started to realize that, in a sense, they were both social satirists, and that their interests and same sense of humor made them incredibly compatible show partners. Timbers entered the conversation knowing that he wanted to create a show that focused intensely on emo music and the culture that surrounded it. Friedman, who knew that Timbers was interested in historical figures with his shows, drew a comparison between emo culture and Andrew Jackson. History books never really acknowledged it, but Jackson was, in a sense, the most emo president the country had ever had. He lost his family as a child. In his mind, growing up, he had been constantly abused by the British, the Spanish, and the Native American cultures. He and his wife would constantly bleed themselves through cutting, and deep down, he was incredibly sensitive and emotional. What other historical figure could relate better to emo culture than Jackson? By the end of their discussion, they decided that they were going to make an emo musical and that the focus would be the seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. The first workshop for the show took place on August 18th and 19th, 2006 at the Williamstown Theatre Festival, who offered Timbers and Friedman the chance to do something with their non-equity company. Timbers jumped at the opportunity, 
but Friedman wasn't sold. In an interview with Speakeasy Stage, Friedman stated, I think very much against my will, Alex dragged me, kicking and screaming. When the two arrived, Timbers only had the first 20 minutes of the show written, and Friedman had no music composed at all. The two found the workshop process with the non-equity actors to be incredibly freeing for them, providing them with a lack of pressure to play around throwing ideas at the wall and seeing which ones stuck. One of the songs actually came as a smart aleck response by Friedman, who after having had Timbers request that the first song be about populism, Friedman snarkily responded, like what? Populism? Yeah, yeah. Which would, word for word, go on to become the first number of the show. By the time they had left, Friedman had composed a staggering eight songs, the final show had 13, and the basic shape of the show had taken form. Timbers realized that if this show was going to work, it couldn't be a word-for-word -word biography of Andrew Jackson's life, and instead needed to be broader, focusing on the themes of populism and what it truly means to be an American. A few months later, the company recording for the workshop found its way into the hands of Michael Ritchie, who fell in love with it and agreed to produce the show at Center Theatre Group in Los Angeles, one of the wealthiest and most major theaters in the city. A young actor at the time named Ben Walker, who was mainly known for his off-Broadway revival of Dangerous Liaisons, had crossed paths with Friedman at Williamstown and practically begged for the opportunity to play Andrew Jackson. Many were concerned with this prospect, not knowing if Walker had the rock star charisma necessary to pull off the character. But Timbers and Friedman soon found that Walker's mix of classical music theater training, as well as his experience from stand-up comedy, made him the perfect fit for the lead role. The show opened on January 2008 at the Kirk Douglas Theater in Culver City, California. Two years later, and partly in thanks to Friedman's connections, the show was moved to New York at the Public Theater Off-Broadway in April of 2010. The show was presented as a part of the Lab series, which was hosted in collaboration with the Labyrinth Theater Company, and was designed for presenting scaled-down productions to give audiences immediate access to new plays and development at an affordable price. Where the California version was more slick in its design, the off-Broadway version decided to assume a more smoky bar cabaret feel. Timbers knew that since they were moving to the Newman Theater, they needed to find a way to incorporate the audience and make them feel like they were in the same room as the performers, as opposed to just staring at a stage. To achieve this, the set design expanded past the proscenium, with red curtains and portraits of quote, dead white guys lining the walls. Upon opening, the reviews for the show were stellar, with the New York Times stating, Bloody Bloody manages to be a goofy delight and a perversely affecting comment on the American temperament at the same time, and Rolling Stone calling it the best original musical of the theater season. The Off-Broadway production also went on to win an Outer Critics Circle Award for Outstanding New Off-Broadway Musical and a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Book of a Musical. As everybody gears up for the new X-Men prequel, rumors are swirling that Benjamin Walker may have signed on to play the role of Hank McCoy. Well, I knew if I ducked out, especially at this point, when it's finally coming to fruition, I would regret it for the rest of my life. 
Writing off the success from the public's production, Jeffrey Richards and Jerry Frankel decided to move the show to the Bernard B. Jacobs Theater on Broadway. While the off-Broadway production was doing fantastic critically, they were still having difficulty selling out the house. Richards and Frankel both believed that if they moved the show to the Great White Way, a broader audience would embrace Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson as positively as the critics were. The show would cost $4.5 million to mount, and though their efforts were strong, the public was unable to persuade enough investors to help the show reach capitalization, leaving Richards and Frankel to step forward and help cover the remaining amount needed. Finally, after four years of workshops, performances in California, and a critically acclaimed run at the public theater, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson would open on Broadway on October 13, 2010. The reviews again were mostly stellar, with the New York Times again stating that it was an invigorating production, and Entertainment Weekly declaring, if you haven't seen it yet, what are you waiting for? While the critics were absolutely in love with the show, the audiences just didn't seem to care. Right from the get-go, the show struggled to sell tickets, with its best week falling on the Thanksgiving holiday, bringing in $442,113, indicating that there was some tourist interest. The show continued to run for 120 performances, but ultimately closed on January 2nd, 2011, with a total gross of $4,773,079. When factoring in that the average running cost of a Broadway show is estimated to be around $600,000 according to producer's perspective, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson closed at an estimated loss of $2,426,921 to investors. But I'm sure you're wondering, what was the show about? Well, let me give you a quick rundown. The show follows the life of Andrew Jackson, from his childhood in Tennessee, to his time as a war general, becoming the governor of Florida, navigating the corrupt bargain that played a role in his losing the election, and finally assuming the role of president. The play is initially led by a storyteller in a wheelchair, but she's taken out at the beginning of the show and then sporadically reappears. I didn't really get that part, and I felt like it didn't need to be in there. The music features a Spring Awakening vibe, with the characters occasionally singing from mic stands and a band of a bass guitar, guitar piano, and drums. Near the end, the question is presented to the audience to decide if Jackson was actually a hero, or if he's just America's Hitler. So that was quick, but you should be pretty much caught up now. Following its closure, Bloody Bloody would go on to be nominated for two Tony Awards in 2011, for Best Book of a Musical and Best Scenic Design. In October of 2012, the show premiered at Boston's Speakeasy Stage Company, and in the fall of 2014, controversy rose around the show when a student organization at Stanford University named Fountain Theatricals canceled its production due to pressure from the Stanford American Indian Organization. Alex Timber's star would continue to rise following the show, earning him directing credits with shows such as Peter and the Starcatcher, Rocky, Beetlejuice, and the upcoming Moulin Rouge on Broadway. Michael Friedman continued composing music, most notably by composing the score for the stage adaptation of Misery in 2015 with Laurie Metcalf and Bruce Willis. 
However, sadly, on September 10th, 2017, Michael Friedman passed away at the age of 41 due to complications with HIV and AIDS. His passing rocked the theater community, with many artists sharing their respects, most notably Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote, aching with gratitude for the music and joy he gave us, mourning all the music we'll never hear. When I first listened to the Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson soundtrack in 2016, I instantly fell in love with it, and it became a part of my frequent rotation of albums that I could listen to for hours on end, much to the disdain of my ex-girlfriend. When thinking about why the show flopped, my mind instantly jumped to the assumption that it had to be a weak book. In my mind, that was the only way that a show with music and a concept like this could flop. Upon going into my first viewing of the off-Broadway show, I was ready to rip it apart harder than The Last Jedi. But after they took their final bows, I found myself thinking, that was actually kind of good. It was in this moment that I realized finding the answer to why this show flopped wouldn't be as simple as I had first thought. I thought about it day and night, trying to pinpoint if a show about a historical figure rocking to music outside of his time period had mass appeal. And that was when it hit me. Andrew Jackson was Hamilton before Hamilton even existed. So I went back and rewatched both shows and realized that in Hamilton, there were multiple places that could have been inspired by bloody bloody Andrew Jackson. One of the staples of Hamilton are the singers yelling the settings, such as the Battle of Yorktown, which drew a close comparison to the singers yelling the Battle of New Orleans in Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. Now that is a very broad example I realize, and could hold no merit to it, but it was just one of the Hamilton-esque examples I found in the show. Both musicals deal with an isolated main character, trying to achieve the American dream. Both serve as modernized tellings of history, and both implement music that isn't typically associated with musical theater. So why did Hamilton, which also premiered at the Public Theater, go on to become a national phenomenon while Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson came and went without a sound? The first possible reason I could think of is that the public perception of Alexander Hamilton and Andrew Jackson are night and day. Many view Alexander Hamilton as an American icon, a figure that taps into the idea that it doesn't matter what your background is. As long as you learn, set your mind on something, and then work for it, you can achieve anything and make a difference. Interestingly enough, Jackson is just as much a symbol for the American dream as Hamilton. He was just a kid from Tennessee, whose whole family died when he was young, leaving him to basically raise himself. The problem is, when comparing their legacies, people are more likely to identify with Hamilton than with Andrew Jackson. And his legacy is typically viewed in a much darker light. He tried to destroy the central banks, and he is mostly known for instilling the country with a renewed hate and anger towards Native Americans that had been mostly maligned before his presidency, resulting in the eradication of natives from the South and leading to the Trail of Tears in which 16,000 Cherokee were forced to leave their land near the east of the Mississippi 
and journey 1,200 miles to relocate in Oklahoma. When comparing the two stories, Hamilton is clearly the more uplifting of the two. Going from off-Broadway to Broadway is a big move. Mm -hmm. Do you worry about the sharpness of the humor, the, some of the raw elements appealing to a wider audience? Over the course of its run, Bloody Bloody was no stranger to controversy. And that's because it was ultimately designed for that. The audiences for Broadway and off-Broadway shows are entirely different beasts. Off-Broadway audiences typically know what they're getting into and actively seek out the edgier, more thought-provoking and controversial works that hold a mirror up to the ugly side of reality. If you look back at the early works of LFC, they're pretty off the wall and certainly not something that most mainstream audiences could understand or appreciate. I'm looking at you, Hell House. But when people are seeking out shows on Broadway, they typically want a safe bet. Tickets don't come cheap, and with 62% of the tickets being purchased by tourists, it is extremely possible that they had to choose their shows carefully based on the limited time that they were in the city. This is why the top shows during Bloody Bloody's run were Wicked, The Lion King, Jersey Boys, and Billy Elliot. All musicals with name recognition and a safe bet for the ticket prices. When given the chance between spending $108 on Lion King tickets, a show that has been critically applauded and is perfect for the whole family, or spending $44 on a ticket to bloody bloody Andrew Jackson to see the seventh president rub blood all over another man's wife after slashing his own wrists, it can be easy to see why it didn't appeal to the masses. The next thing to look at was the music between Hamilton and bloody bloody. Now Bloody Bloody opened on Broadway in 2010 when a transition in America's preferences of music was starting to occur, in which rock music slowly started to decline in popularity while rap and R&B started to rise. When Bloody Bloody was first conceived in 2006, Fall Out Boy had released their punk rock classic album from Under the Court Tree and bands like Boys Like Girls, Plain White Tees, and My Chemical Romance were all the rage for the 90s and early 2000s baby. By the time that Bloody Bloody reached Broadway, it was nearly five years later, and that tide had begun to shift away from emo and towards more of a punk pop vibe, if anything, with bands like Sleeping With Sirens, Pierce the Veil, and Black Veil Brides beginning to rise in popularity. Sure, American Idiot opened a year prior in 2009, and it was the same vein as Bloody Bloody, but it had the added luxury of having Green Day attached to its name, and was really able to catch that last wave of teenage angst. It's also worth noting that while I do love the music from the show, it was billed as a pure emo rock musical. But while it felt like there were certain songs that got close to hitting the style, like Rockstar and Populism Yeah Yeah, there were other moments in the show where it felt like they couldn't fully commit to that style of music all the way mainly in songs like 10 Little Indians and The Corrupt Bargain, which kind of sounded out of place and more musical theatery as opposed to emo. Now compare this with Hamilton, which was billed as a pure hip-hop R&B show and which successfully committed to that all the way through the production, with the exception of King George. Hamilton also was in a unique position where it was able to tap into that genre of preference transition that was occurring during this time. 
really starting with Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid Mad City releasing in 2012. Hamilton was able to capture and, in a sense, capitalize on the growing popularity of hip-hop, specifically amongst the younger generations. It's interesting because on its surface, Bloody Bloody was a sexy show that should have appealed to young theatergoers. The problem was, in the season that Bloody Bloody opened, the average attendee age, according to the Broadway League, was 44 years old, meaning that the style and tone of the show really did alienate the main Broadway audience. Timbers tried to combat this by saying that he strove to create a show that appealed to older and non-theater goers, but what most people saw was The Surface, which was an edgy, punk rock, young person musical. Add in the fact that at the time, the emo culture was not specifically looked upon well by the older generations, and the show didn't have the appeal necessary for bringing in a sustainable audience at the time. This ties into what I think is the biggest reason that Andrew Jackson failed while Hamilton thrived. Bloody Bloody was a victim of bad timing. The show was originally conceived during Bush's second term and didn't mesh as well in 2010's hope-filled Obama era. I think Vox said it best when they said, seemingly, the show had missed its moment in history. People weren't as inclined to see a show about an era that really didn't mean that much to them because it wasn't as poignant of a reality for them anymore. It lacked cultural relevance at the time. Add in that the Great Recession had only ended one month prior to the show premiering and unemployment in October of 2010 was at a staggering 9.6%. The only ones who were going to Broadway during this time were typically the same upper-class aristocrats that the show was attacking, with the average annual income of the typical Broadway attendee being $244,100, according to the Broadway League. These people probably weren't too keen on going to a show targeting them, or featuring emo music that they didn't understand. And that meant that people weren't talking about the show during a season when word of mouth was the most influential factor in show selection. I do constantly find myself wondering though, if the show would work better now. It could create a stronger word of mouth following because it's more relevant of a show now than ever. I don't want to get too political, but there's no denying that there are some striking similarities between Andrew Jackson and Donald Trump. I think the show could find its footing if it made some tweaks and revamps, mainly not keeping it as an all-white cast in a show depicting injustices towards Native Americans. And maybe if they updated Friedman's music to better match the tone of what punk pop is today. But as long as they keep Timber's original vision of making theater that doesn't make a judgment for the audience and instead creates a piece that allows the audience to make its own decisions, it could be interesting to see how it would fare. Don't get me wrong though, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson is not a bad show. It has its faults, but what show doesn't? Sure, I would have liked it if the supporting characters had more depth and if the music had fully committed to emo rock. But I realized looking at it objectively, that's not what the show was out to do. It was out to be a satire of emo and the ridiculousness of populism and politics as a whole. The show didn't flop because it was bad. The show flopped because it wasn't commercially designed for Broadway. 
I feel like so many people view Broadway as the end-all be-all for whether a musical or play is good or not. When in reality, the quality of a show takes a back seat to whether it's marketable or not. If a show succeeds on Broadway, regardless of whether it's a good show or not, it also means it satisfied another quota responsible for making it a hit. Now there are absolutely a lot more than this, but the main ones I came up with are it either one, appealed to the upper class of America and instilled a sense of FOMO, fear of missing out, like Hamilton, two, gave the entire family something to see together, like The Lion King, or three, it had strong name recognition from early word of mouth, Dear Evan Hansen. These quotas are not set in stone and are entirely my opinion. But the main point from listing these is to show that the quality of the show, no matter how good or how bad it is, doesn't instantly mean it's going to be a Broadway hit, unless it's bankable in some regard. You could have a show like Bloody Bloody, which was critically acclaimed, but failed to capitalize on any of the three quotas I listed. Unless your show is commercially marketable, it more than likely isn't going to succeed on Broadway. That doesn't always make it a bad show though. Now is this problem only on Broadway? Absolutely not. And it's starting to find its way into off-Broadway as well. But that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that Broadway isn't the end-all be-all for if a show is good or not. There are great plays that never even make it to Broadway. Like The Cost of Living, which premiered at the Williamstown Theater Festival and ran off-off-Broadway. Now that all being said, I have to join the chorus that sings the praises of Alex Timbers and Michael Friedman for creating a fun, poignant piece of theater that challenged just what it means to be a Broadway show. Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson didn't flop because it was bad. It flopped because it was a victim of circumstance it failed to appeal to the upper commercial classes, and ultimately, because Broadway just wasn't ready for the age of Jackson. Hey guys, thank you so much for watching the video. If you have any suggestions for what flop I should cover next month, please comment below. I'm pointing, but you can't see it. I make new video essays once a month, so hit that subscribe button so you don't miss it. To finish, I just wanted to send out a huge heartfelt thank you to everyone who supported the Spider-Man video. It's crazy because I've been making YouTube videos for 10 years, and it was cool to finally have people commenting who weren't just my grandma, saying, good job, sweetie. So please keep commenting. I love getting to interact with you guys, and it really helps with motivating me to keep creating stuff and I try to respond to every comment I get. So thanks again for watching, and remember to live truthfully in those imaginary circumstances. Chester senses love. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.